Good morning, welcome again. We're in Second Samuel chapter 14 this morning. I'll skip uh, the middle part of the chapter for the sake of time when I read it. Uh, I realized this morning, I, I started preaching Second Samuel the week before Thanksgiving. This is the first sermon that doesn't have somebody getting killed somehow. <laughs> but don't get too excited. We are witnessing the slow motion train wreck of King David's family. And that continues here, even though on the surface it might look like things are going pretty good now in this chapter. Second Samuel chapter 14, I'll read the first few verses and then I'll jump down to verse 21. I'll start at the end of chapter 13. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zeriah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. I'm going to jump down to verse 21. She goes to David and she tells this uh, long, very emotional story about the implosion of her family, uh, one of her sons killing another one of her sons, and she uses the story uh, to convict David, to get him to bring his son Absalom uh, back from exile. Verse 21. Then the king says to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. They were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with great pain and suffering over the relationships in our lives that have fallen apart or are falling apart. Uh, We see in David's family uh, many of the same problems and conflicts and tensions that we experience still today. Show us today through your word, uh, your goodness and your grace in healing 
our relationships and granting us the power to forgive. Uh, Most of all, show us the goodness of Jesus uh, as our greater king and brother. For we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, Most of you, maybe except for some of the baby boomers, know that your smartphones can put filters on your pictures to change how they appear. Uh, Some of them just do interesting things like tweaking the color, uh, making you know more interesting contrast in your picture. Uh, some of them, uh, more fun, actually change your appearance. Uh, some of those are meant to make you look funny. The favorite one around my house is the one that turns me into a floating unicorn head. Uh, but some of them uh, are not actually obvious that they are uh, giving you something other than the real thing. Uh, we call these augmented reality filters. Some of them, in some apps are meant to make you look more attractive. Uh, They can give you bigger eyes. They can give you fuller lips. A couple years ago, I read about this new phenomenon where people are seeking plastic surgery so that they can look more like uh, the filtered versions of themselves in their selfies. Uh, There's actually a term for it. It's called selfie dysmorphia. Uh, In our passage today, this is about the breakdown in the relationship between David and his son Absalom. In the passage, we have something like that going on. Uh, we have this kind of filter being applied to people and to relationships that makes them look a lot more beautiful than they really are. Uh, You are seeing one thing on the surface, uh, but that initial appearance is actually hiding something a lot worse. It's a difficult passage because it does not come out and bang you over the head with this and say, now here's what's happening in this story. This is not the real thing. You're seeing a fake version of what looks like a real thing. You have to pay attention to the story. You have to be a good reader or a good listener. You have to pay attention to the wider context of the story to see that we are actually getting a filtered version of reality, that we're getting a pseudo version of something good. Uh, We're going to see this morning the ways that a relationship or a community can go way sideways, uh, even as we tell ourselves or we portray to other people that things are actually fine, uh, that things are actually in a good place. Uh, I'm going to end with some application points on how the good news of God's forgiveness for us in Christ can and should transform the way that we approach and respond to conflict and broken relationships. Uh, But the main uh, thrust of the passage is to show us something that's deeply wrong, something that's deeply broken, something we should avoid, something uh, that we shouldn't want in our own relationships. I think it's showing us three filters, so to speak, three filters that mask deeper relational problems. Uh, The first one is in verses 1 to 20. Uh, I've called it the wisdom filter. We're getting something that looks like wisdom, but it's actually masking sentimentality. Wisdom masking sentimentality. Uh, It has now been three years since Absalom fled from Jerusalem after he murdered his brother for raping his sister two years before that. So five years total have gone by. At the very end of chapter 13, we hear uh, that the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Amnon is the brother whom Absalom murdered. Chapter 14, verse 1, sounds similar. Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. 
uh, those two verses make it sound like David is really just wanting to reconcile with Absalom. Uh, It all sounds pretty positive. I don't often do this because we have really good translations of the Bible available to us, and I don't want to discourage you from reading them or give you a chip on your shoulder or or make you think that I have a chip on my shoulder. Uh, But in this case, I think most translations actually get these two verses uh, fairly wrong. Uh, The words and the wider context especially actually make it clear that David is not pining away to make things right with Absalom. But rather, they show us that David is actually very angry with Absalom. uh, That their relationship is profoundly broken. Chapter 13, verse 39, uh, a better translation of it, based on other verses in the Bible, probably would be something like this. The spirit of the king was closed off to Absalom. Chapter 14, verse 1, actually says something more like this. Joab knew that the king was against Absalom. That makes a lot more sense of why Joab comes up with this whole clever scheme to trick David into bringing Absalom back into Jerusalem. If David is just, you know, pining away for his son, he could have just brought him back, or Joab could have just brought Absalom back for him and said, hey, here he is, you know, let's kiss and make up. Things are all good now. Uh, But the wider story is going to make it really clear that Joab is no fan of Absalom, and vice versa, Absalom is no fan of Joab. Uh, But now that David has gotten pretty old, Joab apparently is worried about who's going to succeed David to the throne uh, and all the problems that might come with that. Uh, Amnon, the oldest son, has been murdered after he raped his sister. Uh, Now Absalom is next in line. On top of that, Joab, apparently, we'll see later on in 2 Samuel, is even less of a fan of Bathsheba's son Solomon than he already is of Absalom. So Joab seems to be motivated by a desire to preserve David's kingdom, uh, to keep it from falling apart when he dies because of all the controversy surrounding his children. So Joab calls for a wise woman. He gives her this whole act to put on Uh, to get David to soften up toward Absalom so that he will bring him in from the cold. Basically, she tells this made-up story about how she had two sons who were fighting with each other, physically fighting each other. Uh, One of them gets carried away and accidentally kills the other one, but now some of her other family members are mercilessly pursuing justice against him uh, so that she will be left uh, with no one and nothing because she is a widow. Uh, David uh, hears this story. He kind of tries to blow her off at first, And then he eventually agrees to protect her by protecting her son from the family members who want to pursue justice against him. And then uh, she turns the story on David and she says, huh, you know, David, this is pretty interesting uh, because, you know, my story is a lot like your story. This is a lot like what happened with your sons. And, you know, uh, if you're agreeing with me, then really you're kind of condemning yourself uh, because you're refusing to bring back your son Absalom after he killed your other son. It's a lot like what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God sent the prophet Nathan to tell David a story in order to get David to see the evil of what he had done to Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And so the similarities between those two chapters, you know, somebody comes with a special story that is meant to convict David to change what he's doing, the similarities might make you think that Joab and this wise woman are also, like the prophet Nathan, seeking something legitimate. But the story leaves us a bunch of clues that what we're actually seeing 
is a filtered version of wisdom. We're not seeing real wisdom. Uh, first of all, the fact that it's Joab who sends the storyteller, uh, who has, Joab, if you remember, has already demonstrated himself early on in the story to be a pretty shady character. Uh, the fact that it's Joab who sends the storyteller and not God, God is nowhere mentioned in terms of this plan or this lady or her story. Uh, that is one clue that we're not dealing with real wisdom. Another clue is that her speech, when you read it, is filled with all kinds of flowery, elaborate language that's obviously meant to flatter and manipulate David. Another clue is that the last time we heard about a wise person with a plan was back in chapter 13, the chapter before this one. This was that guy Jonadab. And it turned out that Joab's wisdom was actually craftiness. Uh, His wisdom, his wise plan was an evil plan. That's the last time we heard about somebody with wisdom. Uh, And they both involved a plan to do something uh, that maybe was not exactly above board. Uh, But also, too, we have this clue uh, because the story, her story does not really match what has actually happened with David's two sons. Uh, In her story, she tells this, you know, elaborate tear-jerking story about accidental manslaughter. Uh, God's law in the Old Testament provides some ways for there to be shown mercy to somebody who commits manslaughter. But the real story with David's sons was not manslaughter, not accidentally killing somebody, but it was premeditated, cold-blooded murder. And God's law in the Old Testament says there should be no mercy for cold-blooded murder. And so all of that indicates that we are dealing with pseudo-wisdom. We are dealing with an Instagram version of wisdom, not the real thing. It's masking sentimentality. This is very important for us to understand because we live in a highly sentimental society. Many churches are deeply sentimental in the ways that they approach God and they approach problems and they approach the Bible. Uh, One commentary says that when Nathan came to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he was appealing to David's conscience over against his emotions. But now when this lady comes to David with her story, she's appealing to his emotions over against his conscience. Now listen to the soaring way that she frames everything. Listen to the way that she sounds so persuasive, so wise, even so godly. Much of what she is saying is true or half true. Uh, Look at verse 13. She says to David, The king does not bring his banished one home again. That sounds really mean. Uh, She goes on, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. She's saying something like this. She's saying, yes, yes, Amnon is dead. uh, But those things happen. Uh, All the anger and all the justice in the world is never going to bring him back again. And she goes on. She says, God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. You hear what she's saying? She's saying God is a God of life. God is not interested in judgment or wrath or punishment. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of pursuing the lost. Now, like I said, much of what she has said is true. We do rejoice that God is eager to forgive the sinful and the unworthy. We rejoice that God really is a God who pursues the lost and the banished. But the cross of Jesus shows us most clearly that God's love And God's wrath are not opposites. God's love 
and God's forgiveness and God's mercy come to us not because God is winking at our sin or because he's letting it slide or because he's sweeping it under the rug, which is what the wise woman is telling David to do, but rather all of those things come to us only because God's wrath falls on somebody else, on his only son, Jesus. There's no possible escape, the Bible says, from God's wrath for those who refuse to look to Jesus as their only hope for doing so. This hope in Jesus means that we trust in him and that we repent of our sin. Just like in human relationships, reconciliation with God can only truly happen when we repent, when we turn away from our sin. And so when it comes to relationships or to our theology, to the way we think or talk about God, we need to beware of sentimentality that masquerades as love. Sometimes we encourage other people to do this kind of thing. We tell them, well, you just need to forgive and move on. Uh, Sometimes we do it ourselves. We make excuses for other people's sins. We enable their sins. We tell ourselves that we're being kind, we're being generous. Uh, You see it a lot in family members of addicts. You see it a lot with parents of teenagers, uh, allowing other people around you to flout God's wisdom and wreak havoc on the rest of the family, not to mention themselves, all in the name of being loving or being gracious or keeping the door open with them for the future. Uh, In my experience, this is often something uh, that wives and mothers are prone to. It sounds wise and loving and kind, but it's really not. It's sentimentality, and it's ultimately destructive. The next filter is related to it. You see that in verses 21 to 24, after she tells this story and David agrees to bring Absalom back. We move now from a wisdom filter to a reconciliation filter. You have pseudo-reconciliation masking hostility. Pseudo-reconciliation masking hostility. David finds this wise woman's parable convicting, and so he decides to bring Absalom back. But you can tell that he's not fully convinced that Absalom should be back. He still knows at some level that Absalom, the murderer, deserves to be brought to justice. He does go through some of the motions of welcoming Absalom back. He does let him back into the royal city of Jerusalem, But he says, I don't want to see him. He has to stay in his own house. Uh, I'm not going to talk to him. Later on in the chapter, you hear about how David gives him a kiss as a public sign of reconciliation. But nowhere in the chapter is there any sign that Absalom is repentant over what he's done. This is not the situation that you hear about so beautifully in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, where you have a son who rebels against his father but then returns to the Father in repentance and humility. And so he is genuinely reconciled to the Father. There's no repentance and no humility anywhere to be seen in Absalom. It is just pseudo-reconciliation that's hiding a deeper brokenness, a deeper self-absorption. Part of the idea here is to also point the finger at David, Because David never actually pursues justice or accountability for Absalom, even though he knows at some level that Absalom deserves it. David is not really reconciled. 
And he's also not really showing mercy. But at the same time, he's not pursuing justice. He's not speaking the truth to Absalom about what he's done, about the consequences that it's had on the family, about what he's going to have to do to get right with God and with the family and with the community. David is standing in this moral and relational no man's land. It's not a good place for him to be. David does not come out of this chapter looking good. So you have a wisdom filter that masks sentimentality. You have a reconciliation filter that masks hostility. And now, finally, we have a leadership filter that's masking arrogance. What looks like strong leadership is really just egotistical arrogance. Look at verse 25. We've just been told that Absalom has been sort of, kind of, welcome back into Jerusalem. Uh, And then you get this odd couple of asides about Absalom. They're kind of funny in their own way. You hear that he's the most handsome man in the entire country. He is stud muffin of the year. Then you're told that from his head to his toe, there's no blemish in him. Uh, He does not need to use any Instagram filters. He can just get the straight image, and it's glorious and wonderful. Uh, You are even told this funny detail uh, that he doesn't have the problem I have when he cuts his hair every year. There's so much of it that it weighs a few pounds. And then you're told about this wonderful family that he has. He has all these kids. He has a nice wife. Uh, one of his daughters is gorgeous. Uh, and then you're told, you're told about the outward glory of Absalom and of his family. In many ways, he seems to have it all together. Uh, but you hear nothing about his character. You're getting a little reminder here, if you've been paying attention to the big story of Samuel, you're getting a little reminder of King Saul. Remember how King Saul was described when he first gets introduced way back in 1 Samuel? Uh, right away, the first thing you hear about, Samuel, about Saul is that he's the most handsome man in Israel, uh, that he's way taller than anybody else. He's way stronger. He's very impressive. That was a lot of the reason why the people of Israel wanted him to be their king. He looked the part. But Saul was a moral and a spiritual failure. Unlike David, when Saul was caught in sin, he refused to repent. Absalom is another Saul. He's outwardly spectacular. He gives off the impression of being strong and powerful. But at the end of the day, he's spiritually empty. Uh, You then get this story about Absalom being a man of action, a man who gets what he wants. He's getting really tired of bumming around in Jerusalem in his own house. Uh, He knows that he's still out of favor with David and with the royal court. And so he demands uh, that Joab get him an audience with his father. Joab initially tries to blow him off, but then Absalom has a couple of his cronies burn down one of Joab's fields. And Joab says, whoa, what'd you do that for? And Absalom says, well, I was trying to get you to notice me. Uh, One takeaway for you guys today, if you want somebody to notice you, arson is a good way to do it. (laughs) Absalom tells Joab, run and tell my dad that he better get this sorted out. He better let me all the way back in so that I can be close to the action. And so he says, go tell him, if you don't want me to come back, just have me executed. Just do it. Just make a decision. But you see, Absalom knows, the murderer, the schemer Absalom knows that David is far too weak in his old age to actually give him the consequences that he deserves. He knows that he can get his dad to do what he wants. Absalom looks like a leader, and in many ways he acts like a leader. He's confident. He's decisive. He's a powerful communicator. You can imagine him doing very well today as a politician. But you're getting the sense that Absalom 
is totally full of himself. That he has no interest in God or in his wisdom. He has applied the leadership filter to himself. He masks this reality of arrogance and of self-absorption, much like many husbands and dads do when they become bullies towards their spouses and their families. Uh, We've seen it all in this sad and and sorry, sorry depiction of this total breakdown in the relationship between David and Absalom and his kingdom. Pseudo-wisdom, pseudo-reconciliation, pseudo-leadership. None of it's the real thing. It's mainly a cautionary tale. It's mainly about what you should not be and what you should not do. It's mainly showing you how much better Jesus is because of what a mess all these people are, why you should look to him instead. But I want to close with a few positive application points. What should you do? How does God change us? How does Jesus change the way that we approach our relationships, unlike what we see going on here? How does the good news of Jesus empower us and encourage us in the midst of our own relationships as they break down? Uh, First of all, as I've already mentioned, the cross of Jesus shows us that love and mercy are not license and are not sentimentality. Speaking the truth, seeking repentance, Those are kind and loving things. Enabling and excusing sin is unloving. Second, forgiveness from God enables and motivates the pursuit, but not necessarily the achievement of meaningful conflict resolution. I'll read that again. Forgiveness from God enables and motivates the pursuit but not necessarily the achievement of meaningful conflict resolution. We don't just talk about forgiveness. We don't just wave our hands at conflict when it happens. We don't just invoke the word grace like it's a magic spell to make hard things go away. Jesus assumes that if we have truly understood how much God has forgiven us, we will, and Jesus even says, you must forgive other people. If you really understand what God has given you, you will forgive everybody else because what they have done against you is far less than what you have done against God. Jesus teaches that when other people sin against us, we will forgive them, that we'll go out of our way to apologize, that we'll go out of our way to repent when we've sinned against them, that we will be far more concerned with our own sin than we are with other people's sin. Uh, The Apostle Peter There's one point in the Gospels where he thinks uh, he's really hot stuff. And he goes up to Jesus and he says, Wow, Jesus, look how great I am. I'm willing to forgive someone seven times in a day. Uh, You know, that would be pretty hard for most of us. Imagine the same person doing something really bad to you seven times in the same day. Peter says, I'm willing to do that. And Jesus just slam dunks on him. He says, that's not enough. You have to be able to forgive somebody 70 times seven times in a day. Jesus teaches that reconciliation is so important that it's worth stopping your acts of worship in order to go and be reconciled with somebody when you have wronged them or they have wronged you. An attitude and a posture of forgiveness does not necessarily mean that in the end you will be fully reconciled with somebody else. It does not mean that you will necessarily trust them or that they will trust you like before. Reconciliation cannot really happen unless you and or the other person repents. Uh, and some of our breakdowns in our relationships, it, it's, this is impossible. Sometimes somebody has died. Sometimes someone won't talk to us anymore. There's no way to be fully reconciled in these cases. 
Uh, in any case, even if somebody repents, trust is something that has to be gained over time with real evidence of repentance. Pursuing and expecting justice, even when somebody repents, even when you forgive them, the pursuit and the expectation of justice might be appropriate and even necessary. Uh, sometimes uh, Christians can get really sideways on this, where they say, well, don't you forgive them? Well, don't call the police. You know, you, you, must, you can't get justice uh, because you forgive them. The Bible never says that. But sometimes punishment goes right alongside forgiveness and reconciliation. Third, forgiveness from God gives us the strength to disappoint other people. Uh, it gives us the strength to say no to people. It gives us the strength to say and to do hard things, to show people what we call tough love, with the greater goal of seeing them restored and healed, and also in the hope of doing what's right for the people around them who are being damaged by their behavior and what they're doing. You don't have to be driven by keeping up appearances in your relationships. You don't have to be driven by getting other people to like you or to think that you're nice or to wanting to come back for Thanksgiving. When we know that we have God's love in Christ, you find the freedom from, and the, from slavery to keeping your relationships looking nice. The freedom uh, from the slavery to keep things feeling good on the outside. Uh, fourth and finally, forgiveness from God gives us a new family. It gives us the church. Biological families are often divided, sometimes like David's family, disastrously divided. Uh, many times, this division in our own biological families is driven by Jesus himself or his word, the truths of his word. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And he says, I'm going to divide your families apart. But the church is a community of reconciliation and of peace. It's a place where you can and you should be speaking the truth in love to each other instead of blame shifting, instead of stewing with bitterness, instead of sweeping sin under the rug? Why? Why should the church be a place where people act like that? It's because we're so grateful that Jesus has come and spoken God's truth to us in love. As God's forgiven, repentant, and adopted family, you should not only be able, but even eager to pursue peace in your relationships with one another. For Christ has made us one. Let's pray. Father, help us in the midst of our pain and our conflict to see the great joy and the goodness of what you've given us in forgiving us. Help us to be driven far more by your grace and your goodness than we are by the ways that people have hurt us and wronged us. But at the same time, Lord, help us to be a people of meaningful conflict resolution. Help us to be true peacemakers in our own relationships and in outside the church. Help us to do it, though, Lord, always motivated by your goodness and your love. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.